Well, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that we are going through the book of First Peter, and our title this morning is Guidance for Husbands and Wives. And we'll be looking at uh, chapter 3, uh, the first seven verses in chapter 3. And I'm sure, as you can tell from the title um, and the text, that we'll be looking at the relationship between husbands and, and wives. Uh, on Friday, we showed the movie uh, Fireproof, and we uh, challenged folks to uh, do the uh, 40-day love dare. And if you thought showing this movie three days before Sunday was a coincidence, well, you'd be incorrect. We purposed to show the movie, uh, knowing that we would be talking about uh, marriages. And uh, I will talk a little bit more about the Love Dare uh, challenge, challenge a little bit later um, in the message. But if you really want to fireproof your marriage, it is paramount that you know and understand what the Word of God says about marriage. And that's what we're going to do, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we delve into the text this morning, I... I feel it's necessary to talk about the attitude we must bring whenever we do a teaching uh, or, or a message on, on marriage and, and relationships. And I say this because the Bible talks about these relationships in ways that we're not used to in 21st century America. And I think too many people just reject what the Bible has to say out of hand, or they, they, they twist it to suit the culture of our day. And I think we really need to be careful with this type of thinking. I do. So let me just say this first of all, right? that we need to approach this text very carefully, leaving any sinful Selfish attitudes behind. I mean, we know that the Bible teaches that the very first sin, right, was the sin Satan committed that caused his fall from grace, which was pride. And pride results in selfishness, which results in a me-me attitude that is just so very prevalent in the world today. Now, some of you may be thinking, all right, Dennis, where are you going with this? Fair enough. But here's my point. Here's my point. Some of, you may, some of you may be thinking that you do not approach the Bible with any taint of selfishness as it relates to your marriage. And maybe you don't, and praise God for that. You may also be saying to yourself right now that, you know what, I have no problems in my marriage. See, because my marriage is a 50-50 proposition. But I would say to you that if you think your marriage is a 50-50 proposition, that could be a selfish attitude. Why? Because marriage is not about balancing things out. Marriage is about giving everything you have to that relationship without reservation. So if we discuss the necessity of men loving their wives as Christ loved the church and wives submitting to their husbands, our first thought ought, ought not to be, yeah, but what do I get out of it? And listen, I also want to, I'm going to get to the text, but I want to mention this, that before we look at the text, we need to leave behind any current attitude that everything we do today 
it's better than it's ever been done before. Right? In other words, if the Bible doesn't agree with the prevailing attitudes of today, then the Bible must be wrong. Right? How many times have you heard someone tell you, yeah, you know, God really didn't know what was happening today? Right? I mean, God, God didn't know. No, come on. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. John was this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Recent studies have shown that over 25% of Christian marriages will end in divorce. And some studies, that rate's even higher. And of course, we know among non-Christians, that rate, that percentage is much, much higher. Yet we still hear that the Bible is outdated and that we are more enlightened today than ever before. So my ask this morning is simply this, that we would approach this text, forgetting the attitude of the culture that is so prevalent, and just try to hear what the word has to say regarding the duties and responsibilities of the husband and wife. Fair enough? I think I need to pray again. Good God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for a church that proclaims and teaches and preaches the word of God. But my prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would help me to honor your word and to handle your word correctly. I also pray that you'd prepare our hearts to receive it as well. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You can follow in your devices or your Bible, or I will have it here on the screen. And let's take a look at this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your dorting be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your dorting be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, the duty of a wife to a husband, Peter declares in verse 1, is to be submissive to him. Now, unfortunately, this command has taken on a very negative context, and it really shouldn't have. So the first aspect of submission I want to touch on is simply this. Why be submissive? Why be submissive? When Peter writes to wives concerning submission, he's using the Greek word um, Hypertasso, uh, um, hupertasso, um, which, which is, basically means 
a military term meaning to arrange in military fashion under the commander. George Hornicle actually gave that definition to us last Sunday. But listen, Peter is not saying that a, a wife is the husband's slave, or is he saying that the husband can abuse the wife? Nor is he saying that the wife is not allowed to have a personality. He's simply saying that God has created an institution called marriage that's described all the way back to Genesis, where it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, so how does that work? That's the question, isn't it? How does that actually work? Now, we know in a marriage, right, we bring two personalities together. We bring two brains together, and we're melding two people into one, right? Well, for those of us who are married, that ain't easy, right? It's not easy. We, we, we know that. But remember, it is God who has designated the way it ought to work. And the husband is given certain responsibilities and duties the wife is not. Matter of fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Listen, Paul is just giving us a chain of command. He's not saying anything about the equality of any party in the chain of command with regard to one another. Is Christ inferior to God the Father? Because God the Father is the head? No, not at all. all right? In the same way, neither Paul nor Peter is saying that a submissive wife is inferior to the husband. Their duties and responsibilities are just different. By the way, we're all submissive or in submission to something or someone, right? And maybe you've heard this before. But women are superior to men at being women. And men are superior to women at being men. Fair enough? All right. So by the way, what are the duty of the husband to the wife? First, it's not to subjugate the wife or to force her to submit. Actually, it's just the opposite. Peter says to dwell with her with understanding and to honor your wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life. What Peter is really saying is that although the wife is to submit and recognize the headship of the husband, this is not an opportunity for the husband to take advantage of, but to the contrary, it actually gives the husband a responsibility for her. When Peter says, give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, he's not saying all women are weaker than men. He's saying that the man has a responsibility to honor and love their wife as though she were weaker, whether she is or she isn't. So again, why submit? Well, Peter declares that there is a redemptive purpose in choosing to place yourself in an attitude of submission. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 one more time. It says, Likewise, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Folks, 
this is redemptive. This is redemptive. Look, we've all heard this statement. I know we have. What you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. Right? I mean, so it is with the husband and the wife relationship. And Peter wants us to grasp a, a, a truth that, I don't know, is familiar, but I think seldom realize that there is something dynamic and winsome in a relationship that is committed to the Lord. It really is. It really, really is. Now, such a life does not eliminate the need to give a verbal response, right, to the hope that we have, but it certainly complements it, doesn't it? Folks, we want to reach people for the kingdom of God, and yes, we certainly want to reach our spouse. And I'm telling you, you know, your, your spirit can have an amazing effect. Now, we know the scripture is talking about the wife's spirit to the husband, but I think this principle can be used for everyone. I really do. I think as born-again Christians, right, we're always on display. People see who we are, right? They should. And, and, and this and it needs to be redemptive. So we can honor God by the way we act, or we can do the opposite. Trust me, people do see how you live and talk in this world, and that does have an impact on how others feel about you and how they feel about your relationship with Christ. It's really key. You know, 22, 23 years ago, when we were building the gym and that brick education wing, our building committee was amazing, all right? Um, but during that period of time, oh, the permit process was, was crazy. I mean, uh, building codes were changing. I mean, we had to stop uh, building several times because we had to change things. The costs went sky high. One issue after another, we were constantly uh, in touch with the uh, Department of Health and the folks who handled all the permits. And there's a young lady who worked for the Department of Health. She was blown away by the way our building committee acted. She said she'd never worked with the church, organization, or contractor like Grace Church. We were polite. I mean, we, were, we were, had a great attitude. To the point, she asked if she can come to church here. And she came to church with her husband. She got saved here. She got saved here. What you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. It makes a difference how you act. We are living and walking testimonies of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Look at verses 3 and 4. Again, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of a heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is in, which in God's sight is very, very precious. Peter writes that your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and, again, the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothing. Oh, when I looked at this verse, oh, I had a heavy sigh. Like, all right, how am I going to deal with this? All right. All right, let's get something straight right now. Does this mean doing your hair, wearing nice clothes, wearing fine jewelry is forbidden? Of course not. 
Of course not, okay? This is me, but I believe many people choose to see this small portion of a verse as such a monumental command against a woman's, a woman's attempt to keep herself from looking good. All right? In other words, it doesn't emphatically say, do not make yourself look nice. The context is simply this. It's saying that between the two physical and spiritual adornments, it is far better to adorn oneself with spiritual adornment. Look, beauty has its place, all right? But your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in the eyes of the Lord. I don't think God really cares about your clothing or your jewelry. He cares about your heart, right? And as we can see in this passage of scripture, Peter speaks to the issue of the effects of a submissive spirit of your inner and outward adornment. And then in verse five, which is pretty cool, he compares women of his day to Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now listen, right? there were many such holy women mentioned in both the Old and, and New Testaments. And from each, it was always like a, a loveliness from deep within. See, they did not rely on, on outer adornments to impress others, but nurtured a heart that was submissive to the Lord's teaching. And Peter uses Sarah as an example of one such woman of faith. And she, like so many others, did not rely on her external good looks, other adornments to make herself look appealing. Sarah's beauty, like so many other saints of God, was not simply skin deep. Her attractiveness was the fruit of her righteousness and a humble heart that trusted the, that trusted the Lord and obeyed his commands. You see, she displayed an inward life which was God-centered and God-pleasing, right? Um, and you know what? In all to the honor and glory of God. And think about this. Thousands of years later, we're still talking about Sarah. How's that for a legacy? Not bad, huh? All right. Let's take a look at verse 7. Because if you remember, the title of this message is Guidance for Husbands and Wives. So it's time to look at the husbands. Now, before I read verse 7, uh, allow me to share a story of a panel of women who debated what the perfect man should be, the perfect husband should be. This was a debate. And you would have thought they would have picked an actor, maybe a great athlete, or a wealthy tycoon. No. They decided that the perfect husband, man, is Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> Not only that, they gave four reasons for their decision. Would you like to hear them? All right. Number one, he has a great tan. Number two, he's cute. All right. Number three, he knows how to accessorize well. And number four, if he looks at another woman, you can rearrange his face. All right. Therefore, the perfect husband. All right. 
high standards. All right, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Folks, you need to understand that in the culture that Peter wrote in, the man was a very powerful figure in the family. And oftentimes, really didn't have a real friendship with their wives and, and treated their wives in a very authoritarian manner. But Peter instructs Christian husbands to use their authority to support and honor their wives. And listen, Peter gives a couple of motivating factors at the end of the verse that are important to bring up now as a foundation for biblical headship in the home. You see, headship is not an authoritarian dominance of the male, allowing him to abuse his powers at home like a miniature king. No, not at all. In fact, male headship in a marriage is more about responsibility than authority. And Peter affirms from the start that husbands and wives have equality in value and worth before the Lord as joint heirs of the grace of God. And guys, please, please hear this. Secondly, you need to hear this. Peter tells husbands that their relationship in favor with God will be stifled if we fail as husbands. Husbands, you should treat your wives as fine china and not like paper plates that you throw away. It means to respect, reverence, exalt, esteem them. Show everyone, especially them, your wife, that she has dignity, high ranking, and great status in your eyes. Husbands are supposed to lift up their wives. We, they, we, we should value them. Husbands should view their wives as co-heirs, partners, God-provided helpers, and those who complete our life and our ministries. And like submission, folks, this is more than external. This is an attitude. It's an attitude. I've got to say this. Husbands must demonstrate that apart from Christ, apart from Christ, our wives need to be our highest priority. Bar none. Paul says that husbands, in Ephesians 5.25, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. This is an awesome responsibility, guys. An awesome responsibility. Guys, you must spend quality and quantity time with your wife. You must listen to her. And as the head of your home, it is your responsibility to make this happen. Even if it means you going out, making arrangement, arrangement for someone to watch the kids. Do it. Do it. All right? Learn what your wife's favorite things are and get them if you can. Learn where her strengths and weaknesses are and shield her. Learn her wants and desires as well as her needs. Learn what is really important to her. Guys, we're supposed to be learners of our wives so that we can demonstrate our love and order our lives as 
the best we can to serve her. You heard me correctly. We need to serve our wives because our primary role as a leader is that of a servant leader like Christ. Let me say this in closing. The model for a biblical marriage is one where Christ is at the center. Hard times will come. Never met anyone who didn't experience some type of hardship in marriage. There'll be struggles. Let's face it, life on this earth isn't perfect, nor will it ever be this side of eternity. But when hard times come in a marriage, and they will, it has the potential to tear down the foundation and shatter the union. And if it's just a man and woman united alone, two imperfect couples against the temptations and evils of this world, they are vulnerable to attack. But when a marriage is rooted or centered in Christ, nothing, nothing can stand against them. Nothing. The marriage relationship is a picture of Christ and his relationship to the church. And I really believe this, that a Christ-centered marriage is one of the greatest evangelistic tools a believer has. Because a godly marriage has the potential to reveal Christ to an unbelieving world. And folks, when we see a marriage where the husband loves the wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife is submissive to the husband, it's a special thing. It's special. It's dynamic. It's winsome. It's appealing. And people want to know what you have. They want to know what makes your marriage work. And that, my friends, is a great opening to share the love of Jesus Christ. It really is. I also recognize that in this church, there are some who are having difficulty in your marriage. And maybe you do not see any light at the end of the tunnel. Please do not give up. Please do not give up. God says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's not over. It's not over. I mentioned earlier about the, the movie and the love dare. Um, James Schaefer and I have been talking and praying about marriages for a while, for, for, for a long time. And um, the love dare challenge is it's a 40-day devotion, and it's a tool. Can I just say this right now? It's a tool. If your marriage is struggling, I, I, I always recommend counseling, but this is just a tool. But if you're willing to take this 40-day challenge, I believe in my heart it can change and help your marriage. 
your marriage is good, I think it can make it better. And if it's great, well, then you need to give, us, you need to give a testimony. <laughs> okay? But I, I, I really would like to encourage... I have, by, by the way, I have several books out on the information center. If they're $10, you can take it, honor system. Right? But I also have some, um, a printout uh, of the 40-day challenge uh, with the scripture verse and what you need to do. It, it's not hard, um, but it does take a commitment. So in closing, and I really mean it this time, right? In closing, I want to read um, what the author wrote actually before the introduction, and then I will pray. This is coming from the author of the Love Dear Challenge. Receive this as a warning. This 40-day journey cannot be taken lightly. It is a challenging and often difficult process, but an incredibly fulfilling one. To take this dare requires a resolute mind and steadfast determination. It is not meant to be sampled or briefly tested. To those who quit early will forfeit the greatest benefits. If you will commit to a day at a time for 40 days, the results could change your life and your marriage. Consider it a dare from others who have done it before you. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, thank you for the wise instructions Peter gives on the roles of husbands and wives in his extended passage on godly conduct within Christian marriages. And Lord, we hold up Christian couples throughout the world and pray that both husbands and wives would seek to honor one another in their complementary roles. Lord, we, we, we thank you for the institution of marriage. We pray, oh Lord, that you would protect our marriages. And Lord, I, I, I certainly pray if there's anyone who, who needs help or who, who is struggling, I, I pray that they would reach out for assistance, for help, or maybe even take this love dare challenge. Regardless, Lord, finish this message in our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.